um, looking at, I've made that quite small, I'm sorry if you can't read that, uh, his love, his holiness, his righteousness, his jealousy, his wrath, his will, some difficult subjects uh, to look at. And I hope today you'll understand uh, when, when we get to these more difficult ones as jealousy and wrath, um, there's a great way to look at these to understand why it's good that God is also these things. And so uh, we're going to go through these and uh, hopefully learn something new, uh, as I, I think I did, even preparing it. So as we go through this part, <clears throat> even as all these particular characteristics of God, they're equal to each other. We must understand that every characteristic of God is equal to each other. And I think it will help us to know that whatever God does and who he says he is, he loves us. He, he truly does love us, a love that we can't comprehend. And now last week I spoke of being uh, careful about making our relationship with God transactional, uh, where we only believe God is good because he saved us. Uh, but the truth is that accepting the gift of salvation and accepting Jesus as our saviour is just the beginning of an amazing journey. And as we are saved and introduced to the saviour, to Jesus Christ, through salvation, our journey of discovery will bring us a great insight into why God gave his son to save a sinful world. The bottom line is that God is always more. God is always more than we could ever understand. So today I hope we can understand something important that we must hold on to as we go through these particular characteristics of God. If God is love, the perfect manifestation of what love really is, then his will is perfect, whatever he wills, whatever he decides as it were as we understand deciding um, then it is within a perfect will and a perfect plan so let's get straight into our first subject god is love <laughs> uh, I, when i read i always think my goodness how many times do people use this term completely wrong uh, about god is love it's used to um let me say let me try and be um i don't know fancy about it this term God is love is kind of used to cover a multitude of sin. I don't mean that in, in actually what the Bible says. I mean in that people use it in order to believe whatever they want about God. So to say God is love, God is love, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. I don't have to accept that I'm a, a sinner. I don't even have to accept Jesus because God is love. But this term is misused. This term is abused. And I think it is misused and abused to excuse all sorts of human behaviour and activity. Uh, God is love is, is sometimes used as some last desperate attempt to rescue some poorly thought up man-made theology. Uh, God is love, God is love. If you don't read the Bible, just resort to God is love and everything's okay. But to do that, to what, to what God's love truly is, is to belittle, is to devalue the love that is perfect and true. As I spoke about earlier in the series, uh, 1 John 4 verse 8 says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love is not up or down. God doesn't have an off day, doesn't have an on day. God is God. God is love all the time. He's not like some emotionally unstable being who is submitting to his own feelings, who is unable to control himself. God's love has spoke about in the Bible has been since the beginning of time. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. 
uh, says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The source of that love comes from the same love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when you think that love between the three of them is absolutely perfect, and then you understand that same love is given to us who don't deserve it, that's some love that we just cannot grasp. This love without anger, without enmity between them, without one of them getting upset, without one of them throwing their toys out the pram, the love between the Godhead, three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is perfect all the time. And he says, this love you can have. I give it to you because it's mine to give. And so when you look at it that way, when you think that this love comes from the Godhead, the love in these movies and the love in these TV shows is, is nothing in comparison to what this love is. John 17, verse 24, Father, I want those who you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before uh, the creation of the world. This is how God can say that he loved us first by sending his son to die for sin. 1 John 4, verse 10, this is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, that he loved us first and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. I think this explains the love that we see in the world and the love that we read about in the Bible. The love that we read about and see in the world is the, the love that where it says the, uh, not the, that we love God. And that's what we see all around us in the world. It's this sense that we're giving some sort of amazing love to people and actually it's full of flaws. It's imperfect. People can get upset by it. People can be broken by it. But God, he loved first. He gives the perfect love. So you see in the Bible, love is not depicted uh, as, some, as just some feeling God has toward us. But this love, God's love, it has a purpose. It has a meaning. Its purpose is not to make you warm and safe, although it does, does that too, which is amazing. But the love that God has for himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the same love he looks on toward all creation. Not only looks on, but acts on as well. And this is important because the very act of love was to atone for our sins by sending his son to die on a cross. And so the perfect definition of godly love is this. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. And there's another one, by the way. This is all in the same subject. Another set of verses that is abused, robbed, and used by non-Christians because it talks about love, and yet it's misused because they think it talks about a love between a man and a woman. Actually, it's a love of love. You could replace Jesus in these verses. Jesus is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Who does that sound like? 
It don't sound like me. It doesn't sound like people that I even know. We try these things, but we, we struggle to, to do them. It sounds like Jesus, right? It sounds like always trust, always hopes, always protects. This is sounding familiar. For a person who does not know God, they do not know this love. They don't know the love that God has for his people. If they don't know him, and they just sound the words, God is love, they don't know this love. They don't know what this God is, who he is, what he can do, what he has done. And that's a shame. That's not to put anyone down. That's, that's, a, that's a sad state of affairs in this world. People can quote these verses at their wedding or whatever event you might think of that needs a romantic edge or romantic moment to make people feel all fluffy inside. They can quote this a million times over. They even hold it as some poetic definition of what they believe love to be. But they will truly not know this love. They don't know Jesus if they don't believe in him. They don't know the love that they're talking about. Unless they believe in the God that first had it. And because God has this love and so loves us for all eternity, if we believe in him except this love, we're able to give that freely to others. This love should be like nothing you've felt before. For a husband and a wife, it still does not compare. This love should be so different that we do want to tell people about Jesus, that we do want people to know that he loves them. He loves them so much. He loves us so much that he gave his life on the cross, died for sin so that we may live as he lives now. This is not some empty gesture. It's not just saying, I love you. This is more, so much more. But it's in the hope that it produces in others a want to know Jesus and be saved. And so because God is love, we should also know that this makes him separate from sin and is entirely holy. God is holy. Just as we are to love others with the same love Jesus has for us, in order that they may know the living God and be saved, so we are to imitate his holiness, without which we will not see the Lord. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone, to be holy. Without holiness, no one, no one will see the Lord. But I think this needs to be clearly defined. Christians are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live godly, righteous, moral lives. Sin is always the result of rejecting that power in some way or another. But at the same time, it doesn't mean we're meant to be saved on good behavior. Because the go-to constantly is, I'm just not a good person. Hey, neither is any Christian, by the way. No Christian is good. Not one, no man, no person is good. Not one, no one is righteous, says God. It's impossible for an imperfect and holy sinner to stand before a holy God. Isaiah 6 verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, 
for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Holiness is not a thing you do or don't have. If you don't have it, you're going to hell. It doesn't work that way because if that was the case, then it needed us to do something about it. It needed us to save ourselves and yet we know from the Bible that's not true. That's not how it works. But because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, we can gain this holiness over time. These, any verses that speak about being holy is a, your lifetime of being more like Jesus, of, of turning away from things that take you away from Jesus and turning towards him. It is not a light switch. It's not something that when you become a Christian, you can just go, I'm holy. Although... Let me say this, because of Jesus, we are holy. But in our daily practice, that might not always come about. It might not always happen that way. Sometimes we might do things that don't honour God. But that should draw us back to Jesus and say, but it's because it's, it's not about me. It's not about my ability to impress him. Actually, I'm the least impressive person for Jesus. Jesus is impressive. Jesus is the one who has saved me. I haven't saved myself at all. To stand in the presence of God is, is not possible for you or me on our own. We're not perfectly presentable to a holy, perfect God, no matter how good we are. But as we believe in Christ first, we desire to live to Christ, who will be our perfect representative on the day of judgment. So for now, whilst we live in this place, we desire to live to Christ and so make every effort. But full and complete holiness will only be att attained when we leave this place and are seen through Christ. When people speak about these types of issues of holiness, we have to be really careful that what we're not doing is maybe inadvertently telling people that they need to do something in order to be presentable to Jesus, that somehow they need to do something in themselves to make themselves before they present themselves to Jesus. I've heard this said, uh, even in this place and, and many other places, where people have this idea that they think, let me sort myself out and then I'll go and, I'll go and believe in Jesus, I'll go and seek him don't need to. Jesus is the one who renews. Jesus is the one who redeems. I, we come to him honestly, openly. Say, Lord, I, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. I, I'm not holy. I'm not this, this person. I'm, I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. But Jesus says, but I'm Jesus. And I invite you into my family. My blood my broken body paid for your sin. So there's no earning for you anymore. You don't need to earn that, 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 that lie that the devil tells people, that lie that is sometimes preached. That say, we have to do this impressive thing for Jesus. It's all on Jesus. If we trust in him, believe in him, he leads us to the promise, which is salvation, eternal life with him. God's holiness is 
so perfect, so complete, so awesome, that without Jesus, we will not enter the kingdom on our own holiness or goodness at all. Let me put it this way. When we come to believe in Jesus, here's what should happen. I say this way, one of the things should happen. When we accept that Jesus is the saviour of the world, and he's, he's our saviour, and I accept him as my personal saviour, here's what happens. The weight of the world is lifted. I, I don't need to do anything to impress the world. I now know that the world has been telling me a lie all this time. That somehow I have to be this go-getter, this person who is an impressive Christian, the one who can speak well, the one who can do stuff and bring people to Jesus and all this good stuff. When we come to Jesus, the first thing that should happen is, thank you. It's not on me. Jesus has taken that sin. He's taken that yoke of sin and he has paid the price for it. So we thank the Father for Jesus who makes it possible. And so to accept this attribute of God that only he is holy, to accept therefore, uh, we must accept that he is righteous and just. And you can see that we're slowly getting towards a more, a harder set of characteristics to accept as a non-Christian most certainly, but sometimes struggle with as Christians when things happen in our own lives. Can I still accept that Jesus is righteous and just, uh, even in the times when I think he's let me down? Let's be honest. Broken people who think that sometimes it's all God's fault. Certainly is true for non-believers. Why is there so much horrible and evil in the world if there's such a loving God? But if God is perfectly holy, then he is righteous and just in everything he does. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. As God is the final standard of righteousness by which all things are measured, we must learn to understand that God always acts in accordance with that standard. Not my standard, not what I think he should do, what he knows he should do. So God in his perfect righteousness and justice has every right under, this, under his standard to judge every single person to be sinful and deserving of wrath. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Paul goes on. 24 to 26 uh, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus God presented Christ sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he'd left sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Part of God's standard, his righteousness and justice, is to give every person the chance to come to Jesus. 
to come to Jesus through faith and be forgiven of their sin and be saved. God has every right to punish sin, rightly and justly. But as part of pure righteousness and justice, in our verses, God did not. God stops and says, I'm going to send my son. And in that time, I'm going to withhold judgment. No one will be sent to hell until, until the time when he will come back. But for those who go before, they will still be judged in front of a rightly just God. God sent his son to die on a cross for those sins, punishing Jesus and not those who, uh, not those who don't believe. This is some uh, piece of work by God. He judges us rightly as being sinful and undeserving. And he says, but that judgment, that judgment of hell and eternal damnation doesn't need to be the way. I've sent my son to make a way so that whoever believes can come and believe in him and spend eternity with him. A righteous and just God means a God that shows the path to redemption, but also the consequences of that path not being taken. God will bring justice to the whole world when Jesus comes back. It will happen. But in the meantime, we're called by a right and just God to do what is just and right. Proverbs 21 verse 3, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And this is so others, we encounter our friends, our family, may know the righteousness of God that is available to those who have not yet known him. We were in a time ourselves when we didn't know God. And when we came to know him, we were saved. When we confessed our sin, gave our life to him, as Jesus says on the cross, it is done. And so as we think of what God has done to send his son, in exchange for the redemption of sin and to want many to come through Jesus to him, we must begin to understand the harder characteristics of God. God is jealous. I must say that this subject is, uh, when we talk about jealous, it's not um, jealous lovers, it's not jealous friends or jealous family. It's not that sort of jealousy. It's so much more and it's so much more powerful uh, if we can un get our heads around why this is important part of God. God who is holy invites everyone through Jesus Christ to become part of his holiness. To enjoy his gift of eternal salvation. To be part of his amazing family. But even so, his honour must be protected. God must protect himself from imperfectness. God must not and will not accept sin into the perfectness of the Godhead. God has to remain pure. We are only made righteous and acceptable through Jesus. So it's right that God desires any worship to be pointed at him and for him alone. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. 
We don't point our worship towards him. We don't worship him as the one true God. Then God is righteously jealous. When we look at scripture, it uses examples of husbands and wives. uses that, um, that example quite a lot in different uh, cases. But a husband and wife relationship in regards to jealousy uh, in order to help us understand. And whilst it isn't that alone, uh, the reason why this is used is to kind of help us get there, is to help us understand how does God's jealousy work? How is it good for us that he is jealous? 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. This is uh, Paul uh, writing to the Corinthians. And he said, I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul says that God's people belong to Christ like a promised bride belongs to her betrothed husband. And we look at Paul, we see that his duty was to protect them from anyone attempting to steal them away from their true faith in Jesus before they were safely with him into eternity. The false prophets in teaching a different gospel about Jesus were attempting to do exactly that. But like a father protecting his beloved daughter, Paul felt divinely and appropriately jealous for the Corinthians on behalf of Christ. It was more than his duty to protect them from false teaching. And Paul, in a limited way, because he's still just a normal person who is sinful and broken and needs Jesus, just like all of us, is showing it was personal to him. But the reason why it's personal to him is because it's personal to God. It's because it's personal to Jesus. So he feels got Jesus' personal burden, as it were, for himself. He feels, oh, I'm a servant of Jesus. I know his love for me. And I have a love for you because he has a love for me. And he has a love for you too. So he feels he must be this representative, as it were, bringing this amazing message of love, jealousy. How much more so then is it personal for God? For those that have proclaimed Jesus as their saviour, we are his. And as we understand more about who God is, then in order to have that gift of salvation, that forgiveness of sin and redemption, then God must be honourable. He must be honourable to that which he's set down. He must honour himself first and foremost. If he says this is the way, then it is the way. But in that, he then honours those who believe in him by bringing them into eternity. So you see what jealousy does is it, I don't want to say this because it, it, God's characteristic is not keeping God in a certain way. It's part of who he is. But God's jealousy means that God is righteous. So you, when you approach him, when you see him, and people say, well, I never believed in you, but then we've got this version of God where people say, oh, he's just going to let me in anyway. right? I'm going to get into heaven regardless. That's not God being honourable to himself. He's dishonouring himself. He's jealous righteously because he says, only those who believe in me will go and live in eternity with me. Only those who believe. Otherwise, any part of that, that that falls away, if he's not jealous, then righteousness falls apart. Then the whole idea of, of believing in Jesus to get to the Father is kind of decimated. 
God's jealousy actually serves to our good. God has set justly consequences for those who do not believe. So to not be jealous would in fact compromise that which promises salvation to those who believe in Jesus. John 14 verse 6 says, Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When we don't do this, when we don't believe that this is the only way, God is rightly jealous of the worship we give to another and not him. If we go down this road a bit further, when we reject Jesus as the true and only way to God, we can learn to understand the consequences of God's jealousy, but also its positive purpose. God is wrathful, wrathful. Of course, this subject is uh, somewhat difficult, even even for Christians, for non-Christians, uh, but even for Christians, uh, either it's used by non-Christians to bash Christians with, or Christians almost wrongly reject this characteristic of God on the basis that Jesus changed it by dying on the cross. Uh, when I was writing this, I kind of thought, I thought about people, I mean, even maybe within, certainly within Christian circles as well, we do have a tendency sometimes, and I've heard people say this, uh, it's quite a common thing, unfortunately, but it, it's a preference of, who, of, of the God we like. Do we like the Old Testament God or do we like the New Testament God? I don't like the wrathful one. I like the one, the loving one in the New Testament. And yet the moment people say that, and I've heard people say that, because there's actually churches based on New Testament only preaching, New Testament only studying. And I've heard people say this, that they prefer the New Testament God. But yet, in the New Testament, there's just as much about sin and wrath as there is in the Old Testament. Which tells us something, right? If people are saying it, and especially proclaimed Christians, it means someone's not reading their Bible. It means someone doesn't know the Jesus that they believe in. And that's scary. That's a worry. God is wrathful. Nothing of who God is in his character changes before or after Jesus. I want to stress this. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Wherever Jesus comes within that, God is the same. God is Jesus. God is always God. In fact, what Jesus has done and will do reinforces the consistent aspect of God, of a God who is wrathful. We read about Jesus dying on the cross, and we, the moment that it happens, we hear, we read, certainly, of the curtain tearing. We hear of earthquakes. We hear of people rising from the dead. If this is not wrath being put on Jesus, I don't know what is. The world's gone crazy for all of a few minutes. So there has to be consequences for going against righteousness and justice. 
it is how our own system of law works when we look at how we work in a court of law when someone is convicted of a crime there's a consequence for not being law-abiding so god is wrathful god hates all sin and it cannot be part of him it cannot enter his presence so wrath will have to consume those who reject Jesus and continue in sin. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. One of the verses in the New Testament that talks about the same God of the Old Testament. Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness, wickedness of people, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The reason why God is wrathful is because he is troubled by sin. He hates it. Says it in the word. He hates sin. If he was not troubled by it, would this God be worthy of worship? If he was not troubled by our sin, which in turn he sent Jesus to die for, that makes him a God not worthy of worship, right? If he didn't, if he wasn't troubled by it, he wouldn't send Jesus. And we just kind of exist in this like, hey, you do what you do and I do what I do. You believe in this God? Hey, I believe in this God. Don't think I can believe in a God like that. I don't think I can believe in a God that didn't know right from wrong. Knew me so well that he knows I'm a sinner. He knows I'm broken. If we had a God that enabled us in some in the same sinful state he found us in, what would be the point of acknowledging a God like that? What would be the point of us meeting on a Sunday, worshipping a God who says, hey, you do what you got to do, guys. Just come along and feel good about it, all right? That would be a terrible God to worship. And yet we find that in other religions. We find gods, multiple gods, or even a sense of spirit, as it were, not even a God, but a sense of finding Zen and things like that, we find people just want to be okay with who they are. And yet God says, sin has made you the person that you're not meant to be. And I'm going to make you the person who you were going to be before sin entered the world. Which means we're going to be a different person. That means this God is troubled by the sin and hates the sin that we have. But he didn't leave us there. He then does something about it. He said, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to send my son. So you can be saved and sin can be forgiven. And you can be redeemed. And you will have to do nothing. Except accept him. How then does God's wrath and jealousy work for our good? It's a simple statement. Here's how it works. This is why it's good. God is wrathful and jealous because sin interferes with his love for us and our love for him. So when someone says, oh, this God that you believe in is terrible, he's wrathful, he's horrible. Do you know why he's wrathful? 
because he can't have a relationship with us. Because the sin is in the way, the sin is there, and so we don't accept Jesus, and so he's wrathful. He doesn't, he wants a relationship with us. But in order for that to happen, we need to believe in Jesus. So if we love God because he loves us first, seek to be obedient because of his great sacrifice for us, then for those that trust in Jesus, we can be assured that the wrath has been satisfied through Jesus. You know, when we talk about fear and we say there's the fear of for Christians and then there's a fear for non-Christians as people don't believe in him. And we say they're two different fears. In fact, the fear that we talk about, even in the Bible, is not a fear at all in the fact of being scared anymore. We're not frightened necessarily of his wrath because it's been satisfied on Jesus. But we're fearful in that God is all powerful. God is completely powerful. God is all able to do whatever he wants. But yet he has chosen to make it right through Jesus. And for those that believe in him, we are made right. So wrath no longer sits with us or on us. So for believers, the wrath of God is not something we need to have any fear of anymore. Jesus has taken that wrath, paid the sin, paid the price. The wrath of God is fully satisfied in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we have nothing to fear. And I think this also helps us understand any single attribute of God, especially when you start taking the difficult ones. We often, people will often say, and this is all my experience, by the way, it's not something I've made up. It's over my lifetime, I've experienced these sort of, uh, I suppose, theories and what people say uh, in, in my life about Jesus and about God. Um, but what they tend to do is they take a characteristic and they go, this is your God. This is the one. So I, I hate wrath, right? So therefore, I'm going to hate God because I just think that's who he is. He's just hateful. Now think of it in our terms. Think of it as meeting new people. And the first thing that comes out of that person's mouth, what do we do? And this is the way we're wired. Don't we judge them by the first things they say? Don't we think about the first impression that someone makes on someone else? The first impression someone makes on us? Imagine if our relationships were only governed by the first impression that someone made when we met them. It would be a terrible relationship. We'd have terrible friendships. And we do sometimes do that, but we get over it, right? We, we, we push on and we say, no, there's more to know. There's more to know about this person. And eventually we get to know their other dimensions, the other side of them, and all their aspects of who they are. And then we can slowly learn how to accept them and, and be friends with them. But imagine if we, we do that to each other and then people say, no, I do it to God too. I hate this particular aspect. So all God is is hateful and wrathful. That's a different God, by the way. That's not the one that is in the Bible. It's really important that when we look at any of these attributes of God, all of them must be taken together. All of them are equal. No attribute or characteristic of God operates independently of another. It's just because God is wrathful, just because he's jealous, does not mean he's not loving and righteous. All those things are equal in God. 
he's able to hold every characteristic of himself in perfect balance. From our point of view, we have to be prepared to trust that God knows what he is doing. If we know and trust God in who he says he is, then we need to trust in everything he will do. And so we're going to draw this to a close, God's perfect will. This one, this, this particular subject, this particular characteristic, is, weaves itself through every characteristic of God. God's will is the whole reason for why and how everything happens. God's will is how he chooses to do what he does and chooses to don't, not do stuff. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In him we're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It begins with his purpose, then the counsel of his will, and finally results in his work. God made his plan carefully according to an eternal purpose, taking counsel within the Godhead, which is the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and then he works all of that with wisdom. You see how it weaves all the way through every characteristic of God. It's the reason of who he is and why he does anything. I might not have put this quote in. I didn't. I had a quote from Morgan. He says, our God is a God who not only wills, he works, and he works according to his will. I love these circular statements because they just they don't leave any gap. There's God's will, and he works to that will, never leaving, never changing his plan, always the same every time. And so we can take great comfort in God's will, that nothing and everything happens according to and for his purpose. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is why we need to trust in every attribute of who God is. For those who believe in him, and are, so, and are therefore called to his purpose, God will work all things for our good. And that may not mean always good things in the present time. But as God knows all things and is able to do all things, so all things that we experience, God will use for good. Paul had this same struggle when he was in prison, even before he was going to die. A point saying, I'd rather be with my Lord and Saviour than suffer this, these consequences now. But my Lord and Saviour has left me here to, to, to take these consequences for his glory. For the present time, there may be not so good times. But we can be sure that as believers in Christ, that God's will is full of love for his people. He wants no one to perish and all to come to him. We can be assured of. Whatever characteristic that, we, that we'll look at and finish with next week, we will know that all this is wrapped up in this amazing will and love for his people, that he wants good things for his people. The good thing, it's not the house, it's not the stuff, it's not the thing, it's eternal life, salvation. All that is working so that one day we'll meet him and be made perfect in the sight of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to leave you, of course, with a Spurgeon quote. When your will is God's will, you will have your will. It's another circular statement. You go, oh, so I can have what I, oh, no, I can't have what I have. Because if my will is God's will, if I have his will, then I, have, I want what he wants. 
not what I want. When your will is God's will, you will have your will. Let's pray, and then we'll worship together.